0: I was in a church leadership meeting, not at this church and not even at the last church. Um, and I, I remember well sitting there. We had a plumbing issue that needed to be taken care of. It was not acute. It wasn't, you know, burst pipes or anything, but it, it needed to be addressed quickly. It was a pump in a courtyard that needed to be taken care of. It was going to be a little bit costly to do the whole job. And the leadership was sitting there discussing this for a long time. And, and who you had sitting on the leadership... Uh, you know, a dozen plus people there. Um, and you had somebody who was about 30, a commercial plumber, had been for nearly a decade, um, and we had a plumbing problem. And you had another person who was volunteering their services to fix the problem, who was skilled, uh, in about 65, been at the church for decades, a long standing fixture who was also uh, volunteering to fix the problem, and they could probably figure it out, is how they're presenting it. Uh, And it was gonna cost more than the church wanted to pay at the time because money was tight, so they're trying to pinch every penny. Um, And they could do it right, or they could do it almost right was the option. And uh, the the person who could probably figure it out, been there for a long time, was clearly winning the, the conversation and saying, oh, I can just bring my brother in, we'll figure it out. We're going to adjust it, but we'll have to make one adjustment to it every year or else we'll burn out the motor in half the time of this thing. And the commercial plumber, younger man, sitting there saying, but I can do it and I do this for a living and it'll cost just a smidge more, but I'll do it right and we'll never have to adjust it again. And he didn't win out. And I remember, I remember sitting there thinking, he's volunteering his services. And I, I didn't help the problem, I don't think, because... Uh, It was a hard conversation. And I remember this other gentleman came in and he fixed it. And then we had to remember every year to fix the thing again. Every year. Or else we were going to burn the motor out. Have you ever felt overlooked or underappreciated like that? I mean, we've all had this experience, haven't we? I can volunteer something and I can do it. In the church... We need to be in the business of appropriately using the gifts God has given us. We don't want to overlook what God's given us or undervalue what God's given us. We don't also want to elevate things that ought not be elevated. We want to appropriately use the gifts that God has given us. And we're returning to Ephesians. We went through chapters 1 through 3 last fall, series that we've been doing called Cultural Intelligence. We're back at it here. Uh, Ephesians 4 through 6 over the next month is what we're doing. Um, And as we look at Ephesians, it's very appropriate to this conversation uh, that we've had about becoming God's multitude is what I've termed it as. And it's appropriate to even the example I just gave because the book of Ephesians is addressing the early church issue that you had Jew and Gentile now worshiping together. You had an old system, and you had people who knew the old system, and you had people who now are coming into that old system, and the church has to grapple with what's, what are the necessities of being the church Of that old system. What did Jesus fulfill as we move forward? The the old system made sense. It's how they anticipated the Messiah, it's how they gave meaning to the Messiah when he came. But then Jesus does some things to that system, and and more and more Gentiles come in, and now they have to figure out how they're going to worship together and serve together, and how they're not going to overlook certain gifts in their midst. The book of Ephesians just zeroes in on these sorts of issues. Paul writes about it. Now, when we talk about cultural intelligence, let's define that and then we'll move into what we're doing here with Ephesians today. We'll be in Ephesians 4 in just a moment. Uh, We defined it back when we were doing this last fall. Uh, I I used a secular definition, which is good as anything because we use it in business uh, terms a lot, but it's used in the church actually more and more. In fact, one of our own covenant authors just came out with a book on preaching on cultural intelligence. It's hot off the press. I haven't read it yet, Uh, but I've met the man and I'm sure it's a very good book. Cultural intelligence, though, here's a definition. It is the capability to relate and work effectively in culturally diverse situations. A culturally intelligent individual is not only aware, but can also effectively work and relate with people and projects across different cultural contexts. Now you can adapt this to a church setting pretty easily. That is to say, we don't wanna overlook what God's given us. We don't wanna overlook what God's given us because of age or ethnicity or race or any of those sorts of things. And, and specifically why I find this important and why I talk about the multitude is that what Ephesians is addressing in sort of practical terms, even if it's, it's uh, broadly speaking, it's addressing the final hope that we have that we see in Revelation 7-9, which I'll read for you right now, where John talks about uh, the, the end of all things when, when this thing finally uh, comes to an end, when the, uh, the, the consummation of the kingdom When all those faithful to Jesus Christ who have been received uh, into the kingdom then stand before the throne at the end, and what are we going to look around and see? We're going to look around and see that God's pretty creative. That there are an awful lot of skin tones and colors and languages right there. That doesn't mean everybody's saved. What that means is among every tribe and culture and language, somebody's going to be. And we're going to stand there and we're going to see how good God really is. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And I'm going to go to verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you imagine the day? Can you just imagine it standing there, everybody singing with a unified voice at the throne of God? And we get to see the goodness of God and the creativity of God on display as we look around. Won't that be a great day? Now, when Jesus came, if you look at what Jesus does when he he goes and he heals people, or he performs miracles, mighty deeds. Do you notice what they're called? They're called signs. Signs of the kingdom. Signs of what Jesus is, has come to do. That Jesus reverses the curse of sin. And the division that comes with it. And the unhealth that comes with it. The curse. And we should, as we become his people as the church, we should be part of the signs of the kingdom what we resemble as his people gathered should be a little foretaste of Revelation 7, 9 even now. That doesn't mean we have to unnecessarily create something that doesn't exist on the ground, but it does mean that we don't want to undervalue the gifts that God has given us. And we want to value the diversity of gifts that God has given us and the backgrounds that come with it. So with that in mind, let's turn to Ephesians 4 and let's look at, I'm going to read all of 11 through 16. We heard part of it this morning. And we want to notice what God has given us. That's what we're trying to do. And, and, and the reason to read all of 11 through 16, you'll notice sometimes in the bulletin, I'll have shorter, you know, passages. I'm going to go over longer passages and then I'll get to the Sunday and I'll change it just a little bit. Verses 11 through 16 are one verse in the original Greek, one, one sentence in the original Greek. When I tried to write sentences like that in college, I got markings on my paper that this is a run on sentence, but, but Paul gets away with it because you can do that in Greek. So. Here's Paul's really long sentence. Starting at verse 11, he says, So Christ, gave himself, or Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." Does its work. Paul uses here an image that only Paul uses the body. When he speaks of the body, he's speaking of the church, the people who have said yes to Jesus Christ, and by uh, saying yes to Jesus as his disciples, they form the bride of Christ, the church. That's another way that the church is referenced. So we want to be clear what we're saying when we say the body of Christ and when we, when we talk about these gifts and when we talk about uh, making sure we utilize what God has given the church, the body. Uh, we want to have diversity, of course. We want to be the church and understand what the church is. And even in our day and age, there is confusion among those who even call themselves churches, on what that means. We, we live in a day and age where uh, exclusion is the mortal sin, and so to not be included in something uh, is just a terrible, terrible thing. But there's an in and out about this. And so I was looking around this week, and, and just to give you a, a taste of the confusion, and so we can use it by way of clarification, this is from a, a church website, um, and I won't tell you who it is, uh, but they hold highly, that they are Christian among their, their uh, beliefs, and they are diverse. Um, and I want to read what they say so that we can just make sure that we have to be, uh, understand we have to be clear about these terms. I don't follow everything that they say on here. In fact, some things I just think are the complete opposite, but we'll use it by way of example. When they say Christian, this church says Christian means we perceive in Jesus the divine qualities of love, peace, joy, and justice. It does not mean that we think Jesus is the only path to God. They further say Christian means we eagerly explore the Bible for its spiritual wisdom contained in symbol, metaphor, and history. It does not mean a literal or heavy-handed approach that uses the Bible to prove we are right or righteous. And they'll temper that a little further when they talk about diversity then. By saying we want everybody to come, no matter who you are and where you come from. And I can work with that. But then they say diverse means we trust that these differences inform and strengthen community. A diverse spiritual community welcomes conventional believers, curious agnostics, and questioning skeptics. We would welcome that, yeah. But finally, diverse means that you are free to seek your own guiding principles in our midst. These principles are not a creed to which one must ascribe, rather they are one attempt to describe the spirit and nature of our congregation. That is to say, there are many ways, but Jesus is only one of those ways, and you can believe whatever you want to believe when you come to us, and we're cool with that. Well, if you broaden the definition of church out that far, then, of course, everybody's included in that. But we don't broaden out, and nor does Paul broaden out quite that far. There is an in and an out to church. There is an in and an out because it all stems in Jesus and who Jesus is. If you go back to Ephesians one, it'll come up on the screen. Verses four and five, Paul uses a different image of the church here. He says, "For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will." See, there's a clear inclusion there. You're adopted. You're brought into a family. That's what he's talking about there. And, and indeed, you find throughout the New Testament a number of different ways the church is referenced. Paul, of course, uses body. Nobody else does that. But we see family. We see flock, as in sheep flock of sheep, we see the bride of Christ, the temple, the priesthood of believers. All of these things indicate that you're in something or you're not in something. You're part of something or you're not part of something. It would be ridiculous if we use the family imagery for me to say, by virtue of you all showing up today, you are Westbergs, right? You're part of my family. That doesn't make sense, right? I can have you over to dinner um, and we can, you can be like family, but, but there are kind of are qualifications to what works as a family and what doesn't. Um, and and there's a, there is an in and out quality to that, right? If we invite you over to have leftovers, you're probably like family at that point, right? That's how it works, which we're cool with anybody coming over and doing. But it, you can expand it out even further to the, the point of ridiculousness, which is what we just heard, which is, hey, anybody in Lincoln is part of the Westberg family. Well, it doesn't quite work that way, right? There is an in and out. That's not, ex- that's not mean or exclusive at that point. You can do that with other things. I won't do it with the body because that would get awkward. But if you take the flock example, for instance, you know, nobody would say, well, a a wolf is really a sheep. Well, no, it's not, right? There's a CNN commercial about that even that would explain that. But a wolf is not a sheep. Like there are ins and outs. There are things that are defined and, and, and there's a clear implication that we get from scripture that there are some who are in the church and there's some who are who aren't. But what I want to point out about the gifts this morning, that's important is, and this is the point really, we're to use the gifts that God has given us. Why? So that the body grows. So not only so we become mature as the people, but that maturity is so that those who aren't in the church can hear the message and have the chance to be a part of it. That's why we're supposed to do this. So that the body in fact grows but there is an in and an out about it, very clearly. Now, how do we become part of this body? Well, it's simply put, it's Jesus. Now, what we heard and why I used that, that other example from a church uh, statement of faith that was uh, helpful is that, that what you hear in there is, is how people sometimes try and temper the message of the New Testament so it can seem like it's Uh, it's for everybody. Well, it is for everybody, but you have to make a decision about whether you're in or out. You see, Jesus didn't simply exhibit divine qualities. Of course he did. But from the early church on, they've recognized very clearly and they've had robust discussions about it to make sure they were clear about the fact that Jesus wasn't just like God. Jesus wasn't just the highest created being just under God, just a little above the angels. Jesus is God. That's a clear and distinct point that needs that you can't fudge on that point. Jesus is divine. He's God in human form. And because of that, Jesus does not simply show us how to be human. Of course he does that. Jesus does show us how to be human, yeah. But Jesus' work on the cross fundamentally can change who we are from the inside out, from the bottom up. It doesn't just give us an example, a divine example to follow. It actually can give us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to change us and make us like Christ. It fundamentally changes the believer. It fundamentally changes how we interact with the world God has created and how we see it, and especially how we're going to interact with the people within it. And if we, as God's people... If we've said yes to Jesus, we make up the church. Whether you like that or not, that's who you are. And we need maturity to be on about the mission. That's what Paul's telling us. Uh, The first church I served, the pastor there was telling me a story that uh, has stuck with me for years. He was telling me about a children's ministry at a, a big church where they had kind of a day camp going on. And for a whole day, they were going over sharing with the kids. Um, And uh, elementary age kids, they were working on sharing and all day they've got, you know, these kind of theoretical exercises talking about, well, if you didn't have, you know, if you had more toys and the other kid didn't, would you share? Of course we would. And everybody's willing to share all day. And finally, at the end of the day, after everybody's agreeing that sharing is a good thing, they would always share in every case, every chance they got, they said, we're gonna sit down and we're gonna have a party and we're gonna have cake. And all the kids sat around the table and they gave some kids giant chunks of cake and they gave some kids tiny chunks of cake and they gave some kids no chunks of cake. Now all of a sudden what was theory has to become practice. And some kids hoarded and some kids shared as you would expect. It takes maturity to be God's people and to do God's work and to use the gifts God has given us and not overlook those within uh, who have gifts to give. We have a job to do, church. We have a job to do and God has gifted us to accomplish that job. To put it a different way, uh, according to New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass, he says the gifts Christ gives to the church are people to promote serving and building up. Now, let's turn back to Ephesians 4. Let's go to verses 11 and 12. Paul tells us about some of these gift categories here. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. These four gift categories, uh, you know, every so often I've, I've encountered them, I've studied them. Um, particularly when you get to that pastors and teachers. If you ever take a Greek class, uh, that this is one of the verses that comes up every single time because there's a particular funky little rule that's in there. But when you look at those gifts, uh, let's just go through and define them really quickly and then let's, let's talk about them. So um, Paul doesn't actually define them, if you notice. And if you read the book of Ephesians, he really doesn't ever narrow it down and say, this is what I meant when I said apostles or prophets. But we can get a very good idea from the rest of the New Testament what it is that these mean. Apostles in their basic sense are those who are witnesses to the risen Christ. Um, So you'd have the very first apostles being the 11 who were left around. Uh, And Paul was an apostle, of course. You have uh, someone like Junia, the the female apostle. You have a a number of apostles are named or not named in the New Testament. But these are the people who witnessed Jesus Christ risen. But more importantly, they're the people who are sent. They're the authoritative leaders of the early church. But beyond that, an apostle is one who is just sent out. And they're sent out with a particular goal to explain the meaning of what has happened. What does the resurrection mean? That's what an apostle does. They're really charting new territory. That's an apostle. A prophet, simply put, speaks the word of God. That's, they're not just future tellers. They speak the word of God, particularly to the people of God, but not exclusively. Evangelists, this one trips us up. I'll... reference Klein Snodgrass, the New Testament scholar again, who points out, think of gospelers as what these are. These are people who uh, proclaim the gospel, but they really are showing you how to live the gospel out. So it's not simply the proclamation that the good news is here, but this is what it looks like when you live it out. And, and you could go further and say when Paul addresses, let's say, Timothy in First and Second Timothy, he doesn't say, go out and be an evangelist. He says, stay and be an evangelist. This can happen within the body of believers to explain uh, to people that need to hear. It can happen outside. So uh, it, it's, it's, but it's a local job in many ways, the way it's described. And then pastor teacher. It, it's a Package term, sort of shepherd teacher, if you will, is a way to put it. Their job is to care for the church. Specifically, verse 12 says, to equip his people for works of service. They're the people who are supposed to guide everybody in the same direction. So we have unity of faith and we're moving the same way. Now, if you look at some basic thoughts about this, here are four things I think we ought to notice about this, which is, one, uh, these are all jobs. They're giant categories. They're all jobs that reach or teach. That's what they're doing in one way or another. They, they overlap a little bit. You know, what an apostle does is actually kind of what an evangelist does in a sense. And, and any one of those a three can have a, an air of prophecy about them or prophecy to them. So there's, there's this overlap. They're not really clean cut categories, but you get the general idea of what they're supposed to do from these. Uh, a third thing is that, um, and this is important, that Paul, when he addresses this letter... He actually probably didn't write to the Ephesians in it. That seems to have jumped in later. It looks like a general church letter. And we say that for a couple of reasons, but one of them is Paul knew the church in Ephesus. And this one isn't very personal to the church in Ephesus. In fact, um, Paul wrote it, but it seems to be a general church letter. So that's a bonus for us. It's even easier for us to look at it and say, this is a general church letter, meaning all of these gifts, wherever the church is present, they should be there in one way or another. We're going to find them. So right in this room, we're going to have these. And then finally, uh, you don't just have to have an apostle and that's all you are. Many of these gifts or qualities of these gifts can be exhibited in one person. Look no farther than the example of, of, of the apostle Paul himself, who probably exemplified a good chunk of these in one person. So you might have multiple levels of these within yourself. If you go into Ephesians 4.13 then, because that kind of rounds out the thought Paul has here about these these, uh, things, that verse 12 really is talking about the pastor's teachers, that their job is to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 13 continues on for everybody. Why we would use these gifts is that until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we're supposed to become this mature thing, using our gifts to the best of our ability as the body of Christ. That's the full measure of Christ. And and the means by which we achieve that maturity is to use the gifts. Now, when you look at that list, I don't know where you are, but I've looked at that list over the years. And even though now I'm Reverend A. Evan Westberg, which is just weird right there, it took me a long time to adjust to pastor being my first name, but, so I'm ordained, and that pastor-teacher, I'm like, oh yeah, I can obviously find myself in that category. But but before I was that, I would look at a list like this and say, well, I'm not sure where I fit in this thing. I don't know if you're sitting there thinking, great list. I don't know where I fit in this thing. It seems like it's for church leaders, or it's for other people, or it's not for garden-variety Christians, it's for super-Christians, or something like that, of which there really is no thing. You're just a Christian or you're not. But when it talks about, uh, I would suggest that... You may, if you're in Christ, you may have a quality or several qualities of these, whether you realize it or not. And we tend to think of them in kind of epic terms. So if we looked at at each one and we kind of took an epic, whoa, that's way beyond me, and then moved it down to maybe that's me, actually. Let's just do that really quick. Maybe you'll find yourself this morning. When it comes to apostle, these are people charting new territory. They're sent to explain, really, to, to people that wouldn't know the story otherwise, but maybe they would. But we would think of somebody like a missionary in that category. And, and a lot of us might think, well, I'm not really that. Or a church planter could be put in apostles even. Someone who's, who's charting new territory for the gospel. But frankly, if you work uh, with college students, you might be an apostle in this day and age because there are an awful lot who don't know the story. Totally uncharted territory. Or even in youth, you might be in that world of being in the apostle world world, to be sent to take this out. Even in our own doors, if you work with our kids, you might be in apostolic territory. Or for those who are going to participate in the Lutheran Family Services, a response sponsor a refugee family, that's apostolic ministry. You're in that territory. How about a prophet? Maybe you think I don't speak directly the words of God to anybody, and the idea of that terrifies me anyway, so I'm glad I don't. But do you read scripture? Do you let it sink in and internalize and become a part of who you are so that it informs your life? And do sometimes you speak with other believers or even non-believers who need to be course corrected or need a word of encouragement and you can use scripture to do that? Isn't that the very word of God speaking through us? Aren't we prophets at that point? Or don't we have a bit of the word of prophecy in us? How about an evangelist? We can easily think, and this one trips us up too often, I'm not a Billy Graham, I'm not a Louis Giglio, I'm not standing in front of a large arena of people with an altar call bring them in. And then somebody can think, well, I know where he's going with this. He's going to say, but I need to be an evangelist in my workplace. That's what I need to do. Yes, you do. Good job. But how about if this, is, this has much more to do with the role of teaching, actually? and and embodying the gospel and being able to tell somebody, like Peter talks about, what the hope you have is. How about when our small groups meet together? How about especially if you're in a small group with kids and you are showing them, you're modeling to them that what do normal Christians do? They meet together regularly and study God's word. And they meet together regularly and study God's word and support each other and share in life together. How about the way that we meet together just in general? Or we teach within this place, or we show kindness. Aren't we then at that point and, and can explain why? At that point, we're in the territory of evangelism. Even the role of pastor-teacher. This one seems like it's probably the most out there to some of us. Like That's a very distinct role in the church, and indeed there, there is a level of that. You might think, I'm not going to preach, nor do I ever want to preach. I don't want to be in front of a group of people uh, talking to them. That terrifies me. I don't do funerals. I don't do weddings. I'm not in that uh, pastor-teacher category. But do you ever visit anybody from the congregation? All of a sudden, you're in that shepherd territory right there, caring for the flock. And I got to tell you, any one of these, I was at a... uh, I was at an event recently, it was on women in ministry. It was by uh, a woman from one of our largest churches in the country speaking about it. And I, I remember very distinctly, she said, you know what? I knew I had the gift of leadership from a very early age, but it didn't mature in me. It didn't rise up until somebody in the church said, you have this gift. All of a sudden, that changed. Like, all of a sudden, it became real. Well, that's one of these gifts, isn't it? You can easily find that on the list and say, well, there's somebody uh, who perhaps is speaking prophetically or perhaps is being an evangelist, showing her how she embodies the gospel too, raising up leaders. Or I'll say this, as the pastor-teacher categories, a lot of you, I think, actually exhibit this more than you realize. I couldn't ask her for permission, but Ruth Reichel, who passed away last year, I loved my visits with Ruth, and you know what? She loved your visits with her as well. Whenever you would visit her, she would talk about that for a long time. That's the pastor teacher. Good work. A lot of us have these, and it makes a difference within the body when we exhibit them. Let's go to Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 uh, to round out the thought on all of this. Paul writes, because he's talked about using the gifts, he's talked about attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, and he says, here's the maturity piece now. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Christ. Paul uses uh, a word here for love that uh, ends up being fairly distinct in the New Testament. In, in the Greek of the New Testament world, that time period, there were kind of three principal words that were used for love, philos, eros, agape. Um, philos meaning like Philadelphia, brotherly love that we would show to each other, whether you're family or not, um, because you like somebody, you think they're, they're nice. So you show them brotherly or sisterly love or affection. Eros, much more erotic, is the word that we get that from. You can draw your own conclusions. And then agape, which interestingly, in secular Greek usage, gets very little use, actually, as a word for love. But the New Testament writers co-opt it and bring it in and begin to use it very quickly for uh, a descriptive term for divine love, unconditional love, the kind of love that God exhibits through Jesus Christ towards us, something we don't deserve, but God willingly gave to us. That's the word that he's using to achieve the maturity of Christ. How are we gonna achieve that? Well, it's through that divine love being exhibited both by being received by us, but exhibited through us. Something changes in us when we allow that love to be what embodies who we are and what we do. When I was a kid, I used to play at my grandparents' house quite a lot. They had a lot of very old toys that were really fun to play with. One of them, you can still get a version of this today, it was the human body. It's all the little muscles and the skeleton pieces and all that. I don't know if some of you have played with this. And the organs, and you put it all together in this clear plastic body, and you clamp the two parts together and stand it up, and you can see uh, all the parts and how they fit, but it looks like a person all of a sudden is stood up. When you put the parts and pieces together of the body of Christ in an appropriate way and they begin to achieve that maturity of faith as that divine love works through the body, all of a sudden, you know what it looks like? The body of Christ. It looks like Christ embodied among his people. When we use our gifts, when we don't overlook what God has given us, we start to look like Jesus. And then we start to do some work in the world. So what did Jesus come to do? If we're going to look like Jesus, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And church, isn't that our goal? To seek and save the lost. We are to use the gifts God has given us so that the body grows, both that we come to maturity, certainly, but that we bring in and expand the territory of the kingdom so that those who don't know will come to hear and receive and experience divine love that only God can give. And I want to challenge you with three thoughts at the end here. Um, As we've heard a lot now, we've worked with these these gift categories that Paul talks about. I have three challenge questions. I hope you find yourself in one of these. Because perhaps you're listening today, and you're saying to yourself that body talk sounds great, but I've never really considered myself part of the body or part of the church. I've never really made Jesus mine. Well, that's the first challenge today. You, you feel like you're on the outside when you want to be on the inside. Today's a great day to say yes to Jesus. And I challenge you. Make the day the day when you not just ask for forgiveness, but you seek repentance to turn from the curse of sin towards that divine love and make Jesus Christ yours as he makes you his. Second question, perhaps you've looked at these lists over the years of gifts, uh, just like I have, and you say, I never saw myself in them. Today, do you? As you look at the gift list, what gifts has God given you? What components of these different categories do you see at work in you? And finally, if you see yourself in that list, how will these gifts allow you to impact the body of Christ to grow either internally to become more mature or to grow as we expand the territory and reach more people for the kingdom. I want to challenge you with those questions. I want you to just take a moment to think. We'll take some silence for just a a second here and then I'll pray. So let's go to the Lord in silence first. Father, I want to begin by asking that your spirit would work in this place like leaven through the bread. And those that have never said yes to you, that your spirit would come and draw their hearts to you, that they would be able to repent, ask forgiveness, turn, and receive the gift of eternal life today. If that's you, just say yes now. And Father, I pray that those of us who have felt undervalued and overlooked within the church, that you'd give us uh, the ability to rise up. That you'd give us the maturity to get involved. And I pray for those of us that are deeply involved that you allow us to not be too busy to look around and see who we're missing. God, I pray that you make us into the multitude of that we will one day stand with and glorify your name, praising you, singing, worthy is the lamb. Father, may we begin to sing that now, today. May we embody your uh, your body. May we be your son, the hands and feet of Jesus, this day. May we reflect your divine love to one another in this place. But Father, may you bring us to the maturity that we can walk out of this place and reflect your divine love outside of this place and that it would stand in contrast to the curse of sin in the world and the deceit that lies around that tells people they're okay when they're not, that tells people they're alive when they're dead. Father, take that life, put it in us, and allow it to walk out of this place with us as your mature body of Christ. We pray this all in your name. Amen.